I have told you before that I am not a mathematician. Math is not my language. Very difficult for me to understand. By the time my kids were in fourth grade, I was completely out of the loop on being able to help them with their math homework. I had no ability at all to do that. Thankfully, my wife did. She had the ability to help them out for a long, long time after that. That was kind of her arena. But for me, it just didn't work. But every once in a while, I find myself very intrigued in the world of math. Even though I don't speak the language, I'm still very intrigued in that world. This past week, actually the past couple weeks as I've been getting ready for today's message, I stumbled across something mathematically that I was unaware of. I know a number of you have heard about it over and over and over again, but it was new to me. It's called probability theory. Probability theory measures what the probability is of any certain event occurring. That's all it is. But it's mathematical in nature. It's been used in a lot of different disciplines. Mathematicians use it all the time. It's used in statistics. It is used in philosophy. It's used in finance. It's used in gambling. It's used in computer science. It is used in artificial intelligence. It's used today in game theory. In 1963, the whole idea of probability theory was put to work in the realm of religion. And what they came up with is staggering. At Westmont College, a professor named Peter Stoker decided that he would take probability theory and apply it to the Old Testament scriptures that spoke about the coming Messiah. He wanted to see what the probability was that any one man could fulfill those prophecies. Now, he knew that the job was too big for just him, so he enlisted 600 students to help him with this. They came up with the criteria with which they would build their equations, and they went to work. At the end of their discoveries, they found some things that really today are still shaking the foundations of science and religion. I want to show you what they discovered. 600 students under one professor, this is what they came up with. But before we get into their stats, we need to look in the Bible. Let's go to the book of Micah. The Old Testament, the book of Micah. Now, if you have a Bible with you, I really hope you'll open it so you can see this for yourself. If you're on an iPhone or an iPad, I hope you'll open this up so you can see it for yourself. Micah chapter 5. This is the, the passage that they began with. Verse 2. The Bible says, But you, Bethlehem Ephraim, though you are small among the clans of Judah... Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. I just love the way that reads, but obviously there at the end of that verse, you see what they're trying to accomplish. They're looking at some ancient prophecies as they apply to Jesus Christ. They're looking at all of these ideas out of the Old Testament, applying probability theory to see what they can come up with. And they began with this one, the fact that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Now, again, they put together all of their information, they built their equation, and then they plugged this verse into it. What they discovered was during the days of Jesus Christ, population bases and everything else factored in, there was a 1 in 300,000 chance that the Messiah could come from Bethlehem. That was pretty dramatic, pretty remarkable, really. Now, they didn't stop there. 
they decided that they wanted to keep going in their exploration, but it took a lot of work. Their whole goal was to put all of this stuff together so that they could submit it to a scientific board that would validate it. Professor Stoner wanted to make sure that everything that they handed to them was rock solid. So after his 600 students came back to him and handed him this statistic, there was a 1 in 300,000 chance that Jesus could come from Bethlehem. He made things more stringent and more conservative. Then he took their findings to some other scientists, asked them to do the same thing. Verify the science, verify the math, and then make it more conservative before we give it to the verifying board. And they did. From there, as he continued to progress on through Old Testament prophecies, they continued to do the exact same thing, making them as conservative as they possibly could. So from this one prophecy, they moved into eight Old Testament prophecies. They used the same equations, they put everything in place, applied probability theory, and using just eight of the Old Testament prophecies, about one man fulfilling all of them, this is what they came up with. There was a 1 in 10 to the 17th power possibility of one man actually being the Messiah and meeting all of those requirements. 1 in 10 to the 17th. Now, if your mind works like mine, that number is hard to comprehend. So for those of you that are struggling to catch up, just like I would, let me tell you what this number is on the bottom. That is 100,000 trillion. Catch that. There was a 1 in 100,000 trillion chance that one man could meet all the requirements of eight Old Testament prophecies. They submitted all of that for verification, and it all came back as solid math. Pretty cool. So, Professor Stoner decided to take a little bit further. He wanted to see what would happen if they applied the same equation, the same idea, and probability theory to 48 of the Old Testament prophecies. So they discovered which 48 they wanted to explore. They did exactly what they had planned to do, and this is the number they came up with. There was a 1 in 10 to the 157th power chance that one man could fulfill all 48 of those prophecies. I wish I could tell you what this number is, but it is incomprehensible. I, I don't know what it is, and nobody that I have studied has been able to tell me what that is. That number is huge. Here's the rub of it. There are 456 Old Testament prophecies all fulfilled in one man, Jesus Christ. If this is the number that probability theory puts forward, about 48 of those prophecies times 10, that's what you would come up with for all 456 being fulfilled by one man, Jesus Christ. And they were. Isn't that remarkable? Professor Stoner would actually say this, Anyone that would deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is denying a fact that has been proven very possibly more than any other fact in all of the world. How could anybody not believe in Jesus Christ when you see this type of math applied to it? Even the most skeptical, the most hardened of people, how could they deny that Jesus Christ was the Son of God that came in the flesh to save all of mankind? This is solid science. 
This is solid math. We don't even have to talk about faith. Let's talk about the mathematical side of it. That wasn't enough for God. So he decided to crank it on up. One of the people that has studied probability theory and religion and Professor Stoner's things that he has put forward would actually say this. Anybody can make a prediction. But having that prophecy fulfilled is vastly different. He goes on in his teaching to say that the more information that is given about any one subject and the more detail that is revealed, the less likely of a precise fulfillment that you will find. In the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ, that's exactly what took place. God gave more detail. God gave more information, thus increasing this number exponentially that people would have every reason in the world to believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, that he was the Savior of the world. That's the way God does it. As you study out the Old Testament, you find out that God arranged certain things that would have to do with other people and what they would do to Jesus Christ, thus verifying that no one man had control of all of the statistics. By putting in this other side of the equation, these things that other people would bring to the story, it magnifies the difficulty of the math. Think about some of the things that God arranged. He arranged that Jesus would be born in a town in which neither of his parents lived. A one in 300,000 chance. God arranged that Jesus would be betrayed by a very close friend. God arranged that Jesus would be crucified between two thieves, a manner of execution that didn't even exist in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament said that's how Jesus would die. God arranged that the executioners would gamble for Jesus' clothes at the foot of the cross. God arranged that the legs of the two thieves would be broken, but Jesus's would not be touched. God arranged that Jesus would come out of the grave and people would acknowledge him as God. All of that is arranged in the Old Testament prophecies, thus proving that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, that he was always God's answer and that there's never been anyone like him because nobody else can meet these statistics. Only Jesus can. And that's how God does it. I want you to imagine that I have offered you an investment opportunity and there is only a 1 in 10 to the 157th power that it will fail. How many of you would not accept that investment opportunity? Just raise your hand if you would turn it down. Not very many of you are turning it down. Most of you are saying, if that's the probability of failure, sign me up. I want in on that. Sadly though, People have been offered a greater investment than that. They've been offered an investment in eternity, and they're turning him down in untold rates. Jesus Christ offers a new life, and people are turning him down over and over and over again, sometimes because of skepticism, sometimes because of doubt, sometimes just because of life, sometimes because they haven't studied things out the way they should have. For whatever reason, they are turning down this opportunity for Jesus Christ, even though he offers, verifiably offers something that no one else can. The most proven fact in all the world, there is no failure, but people are still wrestling and struggling with belief and acceptance. It may very well be that the reason they are is they have never listened close enough to Scripture to hear the things that echo around in the Bible. 
if we're really going to develop faith, it is necessary for us to listen closely enough that we can hear the echoes of Scripture. Let me show you one of them. We're going to go to the Gospels. Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 and 2 tell the Christmas story. You've read it over and over and over again. So have I. Beautiful story. Matthew's telling and Luke's telling come together to paint the picture that we are all so familiar with. When we get to the end of chapter 2, something pretty significant happens, but you don't understand what that is until you start into chapter 3. Let's read just the first verse of Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea. Now, we're going to stop there for just a second. In those days. Now, here's what that means. Between chapter 2 and chapter 3 in my Bible, there's some white space. There's a gap. There should be in your Bible as well. It's what separates two from three. In that gap, we have representation of 30 years. In fact, in my Bible, in that gap, I've written 30 years. You may want to do the same thing so that you never lose sight of that. Oftentimes, we can go from chapter two right into chapter three without recognizing the giant pause that belongs there. That's a 30-year span of time. And then the echo begins. Listen to verse 2. We'll start again. Verse 1, just so everything flows. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now that was tough for people to hear because they believed that when the Messiah was going to come, you've heard this over and over and over again, he was going to come as a conquering king. They believed, the Jews did, that finally a king was going to come that would reestablish the Jewish throne in all of Israel. He would lift off of them all of the oppression that they had lived under for a number of years. He would give them their rightful inheritance. They were looking for a military giant. So when John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, that's what they were looking for. But that was never God's plan. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 15, we find out that that was never God's plan. Just listen to this from the Gospel of John. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus resisted every opportunity where they tried to catapult him onto the national stage. Even during his active ministry, Jesus would run from those chances because that was not God's plan. God's plan was not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. And the echo that Matthew starts through John the Baptist's words is carried out through the whole of the gospel. Here's where you can actually hear the echo. John the Baptist said it, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It bounced off all of the solid surfaces around him, and then it came back until finally those same words came out of Jesus' mouth. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Listen to what he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Can you hear the echo? John the Baptist said it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus now is saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That had to have had everybody's attention. If you really boil down what John was saying and what Jesus was saying, you could say it like this. God has come near to mankind. At Christmas time, that's exactly what happened. God came near to man. 
God came bringing all of heaven with him in such a way that man could see him for who he really was. The kingdom of heaven had come near. It would take a while for everyone to see it. But then everyone since has had the privilege of not only seeing it, but sitting within it. And we'll get there in just a second. Something pretty special happened when the kingdom of heaven came near. The Apostle Paul helps us understand it possibly better than anyone else. So if you would, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, we're going to stop there. We need to. So we can personalize this passage. And it is a very personal passage. When you see something like that, as for you, it's like a finger's being pointed at you. As for you. You pay attention as for you. You listen up because this is all about you. In fact, if we really want to personalize this passage right behind that comma, we can add our own name. For me, it would read like this. As for you, Phil. If Deanie was reading it, it would read, as for you, Deanie. If Jack was reading it, as for you, Jack. As for you, Ken. As for you, John. As for you, Mike. As for you, Robert. As for you, Tom. As for you, John. As for you, Matt. Plug in your own name in this. As for you, Phil, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So here's what Paul's teaching. When the kingdom of heaven came near, people had the opportunity, for the first time in all of history, they had the opportunity to pass from death to life. As for you, Phil, you were dead in your transgressions until the kingdom of heaven came near. As for you, Danny, you were dead in your transgressions until the kingdom of heaven came near. But once that happened, total game changer. You could pass from death to life through Jesus Christ. He opened the door for every righteous person that had died before him, for every believer that would live while he was alive, and for every person that would accept him afterwards. We were all given the same thing when the kingdom of heaven came near, the chance to move from death to life. And every person that's ever found it has had their life changed. Let me ask this question, a little interactive time in the middle of the worship service. If you have passed from death to life because of Jesus Christ, would you just stand up right where you're at? Why don't you give God a round of applause for what he has done? Go ahead and be seated. Here's the real interesting thing about that. When the kingdom of heaven came near, as we've already established, it didn't look like anything that anyone thought it should. 
The Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, helped us understand exactly what we should be looking for the same way Isaiah helped them understand what they should be looking for. Let's go to that prophecy. This is one of them that Peter Stoner would have verified. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Now here's what Isaiah was teaching. We've been looking at this for four weeks. When Jesus came, he came in the middle of some terrible times. Israel was the equivalent of dry ground. It was a desert. It was godless for the most part, absolutely godless. They were looking for that conquering king, that mighty king, the warrior that would come from heaven. The Bible says Jesus came like a root right out of dry ground. If you were here four weeks ago, you saw up here on our stage just a a piece of wood that looked barren and there was no life in it and the base that it was growing out of looked like dry ground and the, the bulbs that were down here around the base were nothing but bulbs. That was it. It was a description of what Isaiah was talking about. For the better part of 30 years, Jesus remained just like that. He was a root. That was all. People weren't paying attention to him. You have to remember that John the Baptist would say in those times, well, in those times, here's what was happening. Angels had announced the coming Messiah. Wise men from the east had declared his arrival. The king at the time was so enraged by the idea of the king of the Jews that he had authorized a mass genocide of all boys under the age of two trying to eliminate the threat Jesus grew up in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man right before their eyes, but no one paid attention. Isaiah says, but we esteemed him not. We didn't even pay attention to him. Nobody even saw Jesus for who he was. Then all of a sudden, around his 30th birthday, as John would say it, in those days the kingdom of heaven came near. At Jesus' 30th birthday, the root came alive. It just came alive. Jesus announced who he was and people were able to see him for who he was and and what had looked like death and no promise at all became full of life. It became full of promise. The the leaves began to sprout out of it and everything began to change color and, and now all of a sudden the Messiah that everybody had waited for was visible for everyone to see. He began to work miracles. He began to do things that no one had ever done before. He had the attention of the entire land. And those that would become believers in him would sit underneath the shade of that tree. No longer just a root, but they would sit underneath the shade of that tree and they would find hope. They would find something new. Paul would say they would find the opportunity to pass from death to life. Because this root that grew out of dry ground brought that as the only possibility that the world would ever see that offered the same thing. Nobody else could do it. Nothing else could do it. My friends, I want you to know this. It is still happening the same way. 
People are going through periods in their life that appear to be nothing but dry ground, nothing but barren desert wasteland. There's a root that's growing up in that. And when the time is right and God opens their eyes to see it, they can see life where before all they could see was death. They can see hope where all they could see was discouragement. And if we'll help people open their eyes to who Jesus Christ is, they can begin to see and experience what we have seen and experienced. And this is the best part about it. They can pass from death to life because a root that grew up out of dry ground and became a living tree that we could put forward as the tree of life changes everything for everybody. Isn't that the great news? And if you've experienced it, why wouldn't you want to give it away? A whole lot of people wrestle with that because they wonder if the the passage has really been fulfilled. Is Jesus really who he said he was? Well, if you can believe the evidence that Peter Stoner was able to verify mathematically, then the only passage of Scripture that you have to believe is found in Matthew chapter 28. Go there with me, would you? Matthew 28, verse 18. Matthew writes, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The kingdom of God came near, and Jesus sits on the throne. The kingdom of God came near, and now everyone can see it. The kingdom of God came near, and, and God said it's all been fulfilled in His Son, Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. All we have to do is give him away. That's it. Just give him away. Because we've experienced what this root out of dry ground offers. Because we have moved from death to life, sitting underneath its shade and its provision and its protection. And we've seen the tender shoots that could grow up when there was no life. We've seen those things take place in our life. Now everything's different. Give it away. Just give it away. That's all God ever wanted us to do. Just give it away. People, though, have this natural question, and it's, it's a good one. If Jesus really has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he really is the fulfillment of all, of all of those Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament can be trusted for what it says, then why isn't he ruling the way we expect him to? Why isn't he sitting on a throne changing everything around us? Why is the world disintegrating before our very eyes? Why is society crumbling? Why is all of that happening? Well, to answer that question, you have to discover God's plan. Let's go to the Gospel of John together. John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. We have to quit looking for earthly explanations for a heavenly king. We have to get to a place where we stop trying to apply worldly ideas to a heavenly king. Even the mathematical side of it has to fall away and be replaced with faith that we might really see Jesus for who he is and worship him accordingly because his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is of heaven. It is eternal. When we pass from death to life, it never ends. That's something that we can't even comprehend in this world because everything is temporal. Everything has an end, but not in the kingdom of heaven. There is no end. You see, right there, you begin to change your whole way of thinking as you see the kingdom of heaven. It is so close to us. We just have to change the way we see it. We have to change the way we're looking for it. It was never God's intention 
that Jesus would come and sit on an earthly throne. Not yet. That was not God's plan. God's plan was not that Jesus would rule over us. God's plan was that he would rule within us. You follow that, there's a difference. God's plan was not to rule over us, but to rule within us. His entire plan was that he would change the world through his son. And after his son went to be with him in heaven, he would change the world through his children, through us. He would rule within us. Now that sounds really complicated and a lot of people get bogged down in it. Even the idea of giving Jesus away is an idea that is so difficult for people to wrap their head around that most Christians just throw their hands up and say, I can't do it, I surrender, there's no way for me to pull this off. It's not that hard. In fact, Jesus boils it down for us into terms that are so easy to understand. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke together, I'll show it to you. Luke chapter 10. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to what Jesus says. You've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you'll live. It's that simple. Two commands. This is what it all boils down to. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Now that can be a little difficult for people to understand as well, so let's break it down. If you're going to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, then you're going to love the Lord your God with all of your emotions. There are a lot of people that are good at emotionally loving Jesus, but they don't go much further than that. Everything is tied to the emotional response. But Jesus didn't say that's all that's necessary. He said, also, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. That's your intellect. There are a lot of people that are really good at loving the Lord their God with their intellect. They have a wonderful, brainy understanding of who God is and who Jesus is, but they got no heart involved in it. So it can be very difficult for them to understand the emotional side as much as it can be hard for the people that love the Lord their God with all their heart to understand the intellectual side. Jesus is saying, bring the two together. And once you have, then love the Lord your God with all of your strength. That's your body. That's your action. And then he brings it all around by saying, love the Lord your God with all your soul. That's the essence of who you are. Love the Lord your God. Jesus wanted us to understand that that's in its entirety. Love the Lord your God. And once you've got that figured out, here's number two, and this is so simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. You just got to love God. Love other people. Pretty simple, isn't it? If you're going to give away the kingdom of God, that's all it takes. Love the Lord your God and love other people. Now, Jesus knew we would struggle with that. So in Luke 10, he gave us an example of what that would look like. I love how he does this. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, and who is my neighbor? You ever ask that question? A lot of times in this story, we want to look at this guy and say, he is so thick. How in the world could he ask that question? Who is my neighbor? But have you ever found yourself thinking, Lord, I'll love anybody except the people I live next door to. I don't even like them. Lord, I'll love anybody you want me to except the people that I work with because they're just miserable wretches. Lord, I'll love anybody you want me to except my family because we don't get along and we haven't gotten along in years, so don't ask me to love them. I don't want to do that. 
Lord, I'll love anybody you want me to except you plug it in. We're asking the same exact question this man is. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Before you point fingers at this guy, boy, take a hard look at yourself. So listen to Jesus' response. In reply, Jesus said, A man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. Next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That's what it looks like. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then just love your neighbor as yourself. And here's how to do it. Part of the story that is often overlooked happens when the man pays the innkeeper. He gives him two silver pieces. And then he says, and if any more is required, I'll come back and pay the rest as well. So here's how you love your neighbor as yourself. You do for them everything that you can, and then you come back and do a little bit more. And when you come back and do a little bit more, that's where you're giving them Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself. You love them as much as you can possibly love them, and then you love them some more. You have mercy on them, and that mercy leads to forgiveness. It leads to an understanding of this. There's a root growing in your life, and it offers you the opportunity to pass from death to life. And when you see the life in the root, then that life is available to you, and I want to give that to you. I want to show that to you. That's the something more. You give them everything that you can. You do for them everything you can, and then you do a little bit more. And in the little bit more, you introduce them to who Jesus Christ is. That's where you start giving it away. Most of us are like the the others that just want to walk by on the other side. Let somebody else take care of that. Well, Jesus said, don't do that. You love them. You love them as yourself. You love your neighbor. So it, it really is quite simple. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And when we figure that out, the entire world changes. The entire world changes because God's intention was never to rule over us, but to rule within us. And when he rules within us, we begin to give the gospel away the way the Bible teaches us to. Go with me to Gospel of Matthew. We're almost done now. Matthew chapter 28 again. We were just here a minute ago when we read these words, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah. All the authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. Now listen to what he says. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now here's what he tells us. All authority has been given to him. He has now given it to us. Now you just get out there and give it away. You go and and help other people understand who he is. Just give it away. Give as much as you've got and then give a little bit more. Give Jesus away. But here's the part I want you to hear. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is right there with us. Always. You're never alone. When you have to think about what it takes to actually become an evangelist and to give Christ away, a lot of people think, well, I can't do that. 
I haven't been to Bible college. I'm not a trained missionary. Well, certainly you are. The Holy Spirit lives within you. You're a trained missionary. That's all the training you need right there. Just give it away. You just love your neighbor as yourself. It's that simple. And in those moments where you're terrified, don't you ever forget that Jesus is right there with you all the way to the ends of the earth. He is right there with you. Boy, the psalmist understood that. He wrote these words in the 139th Psalm. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Because Jesus is with you all the way to the ends of the earth. If the psalmist can figure that out, we should be able to do the same. Just to figure out that the Lord is with us every step of the way, all the way to the ends of the earth. That's pretty easy when you look at your yard and think to yourself, I've got to go over there and love my neighbor and Jesus is going to be with me all the way to the boundary. If he's with me all the way to the end of the earth, he'll be with you all the way to the fence. If it's at work and Jesus is with you all the way to the ends of the earth, then he's going to be with you all the way over to somebody else's truck. No matter what it is, Jesus is there with us. It's the people that have figured that out that are making a difference in this world in the name of Jesus Christ. You want to know why? It's because they've sat underneath the tree. Not just the root, but the tree. They understand who Jesus is. They're able to sit there and and know the love and the compassion and the mercy and all of the fruits of the Spirit that are a part of a relationship with Him. That's easy to talk about. That's easy to share with other people. It's as if you have discovered something that no one else could. Maybe the best way to illustrate that is to go back to our math illustration. I'm going to have Terry put the big number back up on the screen. 1 to 10 to the 157th power. That's huge. Too hard for us to comprehend. So let's roll it back one. 10 to the 17th power. 1 to 10 to the 17th power. Mathematicians have tried to explain this and they've had to use some different ways of doing it. If you were to mark a ticket and then combine it with nine other tickets, throw them in a hat and mix them all together and then stick your hand in, you have a one in ten chance of pulling out the marked ticket. That's pretty simple math. But when we get to numbers like this, 100,000 trillion, it's very difficult for us to try to even wrap our head around, let alone understand So here's the way mathematicians do it. They use the state of Texas to illustrate the point. They would say that if you were to cover the state of Texas with silver dollars, and one of those silver dollars was marked with an X, and every other one of them was plain, if you were to put that X'd one in with all of these other silver dollars, 100,000 trillion, mix them all up, and then cover the state of Texas, Texas would be covered two feet deep, two feet deep, with silver dollars. Then blindfold somebody, stick them in the middle of the state and tell them that they can walk in any direction that they want to walk. And then when they decide to stop, they have to reach down and pick up one of the silver dollars. They have a one in 100,000 trillion chance of picking up the marked one. 
If you have picked up Jesus Christ, you won. You found the marked silver dollar. All of these prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus, and he now lives within you. He is the Messiah. He's the one that was promised, and you found him. Now, the bonus is you don't have to blindfold somebody else and send them out to do it on their own. You get to lead them right to the mark. This is how you find him. You get to take them right there. Why not use the Christmas season as a chance to do that? Most of us never think of the Good Samaritan as a Christmas story. It is. Most of us never think of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Oh, a little bit in the book of Isaiah, but then we don't think much about it. But the book of Isaiah is full of all these different prophecies that lead us up to the Christmas story, that take us to the Good Samaritan story, that we might understand, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Simple teachings of the Bible, which really mean just lead them to the marked silver dollar and give them access to eternity by helping them move from death to life, just like you have. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, the numbers that we've looked at are huge. But the scripture we've looked at is easy. For those of us that have moved from death to life, it's no struggle at all. We're able to see you for who you really are. And for that, we are so thankful. Lord, help us help others open their eyes that they might do the same. I know that there are some with us today that need to make a decision to pick up the silver dollar, to pick you up. I pray they will today. I pray they won't wait any longer. I pray it will happen today. And I pray, Lord, that you'll begin to rule within them. And from there, I look forward to seeing how they change the world around them by giving away the gift of salvation, the gift of who you are. Thank you for allowing us to do that every day of the year. But I thank you especially for the sensitivity necessary this time of year so that people can come to know you over and over and over again. I pray, Lord, that we'll be faithful with all of the silver dollars that we carry. They're all marked. Help us give them away. In Jesus' name, amen.